An event occurred in the year AD 386 that remains to this day as one of the most well-known, famous stories of spiritual transformation. It happened to a man from the city of Hippo called Augustine. He was 33 years old at the time and had up to this point in his life, up to that age, up to that year, 386, had lived quite a promiscuous life. He had indulged in all kinds of the desires of the flesh, had pursued earthly fame as his, his top desire, and the Lord had been working in his life slowly to draw him to himself, and Augustine at this time had begun to feel the evils of his heart. He had become increasingly convicted over his sexual immorality. He knew it was evil, but he was unable to break its power. Augustine details what happened to him on that day in his book called The Confessions. Book 8, chapter 12, begins this way in his Confessions. But when a deep consideration had from the secret bottom of my soul drawn together and heaped up all my miseries in the sight of my heart, there arose a mighty storm bringing a mighty torrent of tears. At the time, Augustine was with his friend Olypius in a garden. Augustine's sorrow was so profound that they both understood that the sorrow could not be solved by any normal friend. Olypius leaves Augustine. Augustine walks away from Olypius to go and weep under a fig tree. He continues his account of this moment with these words. So I was speaking and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart, when lo, I heard from a neighboring house a voice, as of boy or girl, chanting and repeating, tole lege, tole lege, Latin for take up and read, take up and read. Instantly my countenance altered. I began to think most intently whether children were apt in any kind of play to sing such words. Nor could I remember ever to having heard of the like. So checking that torrent of my tears, I arose, interpreting this to be no other than a command from God to open the book and read the first chapter that I should find. Eagerly, then I returned to the place where Olypius was sitting, for there I had laid the volume of the Apostle Paul when I had arose and left him. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the section on which my eyes first fell. The words he opened to were the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13, verses 13 to 14, which read as follows, as far as the portion that he read. He read this, Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, 
not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Augustine then described what happened next. He said this, No further would I read, nor needed I. For instantly, at the end of this sentence, by a light, as it were, of serenity infused into my heart, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Augustine was converted through a reading of Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, which which discusses the issue of desires and the flesh. And through this conversion, Augustine would go on to say that at that moment, his lifelong enslavement to sex and worldly success was completely broken. He was free. What these words raise to us is an issue that all of us struggle with, the issue of desire, desires of the flesh. How do we understand these desires? How do they operate even within the Christian man? How do they relate to the mind? These are all very crucial questions and that is why we will look at this topic tonight on the topic of desires and the relationship of desire to thinking, to the mind. And there's perhaps no better text to turn to other than this one from Romans than James chapter 1 verses 13 to 15. Here the the, the writer James, the half-brother of the Lord, writes this. He says, quote, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or desire. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. As I said, this, this text is one of the most explicit in giving us direct teaching about the nature of desire and its relationship to us and to the mind. And it raises and will help us answer these kinds of questions. What is desire? What is desire and, and how does desire operate How how does desire relate to the mind, to one's thinking and and rationality? What is the mind's responsibility to desire? Well, James chapter 1 provides a helpful foundation upon which to build and upon which we can answer these kinds of questions. And, And as we look at this text this evening, we're going to see the three theses that James gives to us with respect to desire. They're sequential in nature, and we will walk our way through each one of these, each one pertaining to one verse. So, first of all, the first thesis that James gives us in verse 13 is this. God does not entice you toward evil. Number two, the second thesis, and growing out of the first, is this. Your desire, your desire is what entices you, verse 14 And then in verse 15, the third and final thesis is this, and destruction is desire's outcome. 
Let's look at the first of these then. In verse 13, God does not entice you toward evil. James writes as follows, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. This is the key exhortation in this entire paragraph. And James deals with the issue of temptation here at a very personal level. Notice the pronouns that are used. Let no one say, I am being tempted. He himself, that is God, does not tempt anyone. It's all very personal. It's all very individual. Moreover, we have to look at this term now, the word tempt. To be tempted. James says, let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. And God does not tempt anyone. Three times we have this verb used to tempt. And one time, right there in the middle, when it says God cannot be tempted by evil, we find a related adjective form. So this is the emphasis of the text, repeated over and over and over again. Well, what does this verb attempt refer to well this greek verb peradzo actually has two nuances the first one is this it means to test by means of external pressure to test particularly by means of external pressure but secondly the second nuance in this verb is the idea of to entice And this is by means of internal pull. To test by means of external pressure. And to pull by means of, or to entice by means of internal pull. Now this is very important because James has already used nouns that have related to this verb that we find here in verse 13. If we go all the way back to chapter 1 verse 2... James begins his letter saying this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Perismos is based off the same cognate as the verb to tempt or, or to try, to test. But James there in verse 2 says, Consider all joy when you encounter trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then at the end of that section, right before he gets to verse 13, in verse 12, he uses the noun again. And he says this, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So in this sense, this idea of testing by means of external pressure This idea serves as bookends to the first portion of James' letter. It's found in verse 2 as he begins. And then in verse 12, it's found again. And in between, you have this emphasis on how God is sovereign in the testing. He's got a design for this external pressure to refine us. To strengthen our faith. To prepare us for glory. That's James' emphasis. Indeed, God, in this sense, does test us. He does test us. But that reality, the fact that God will use external pressures in our lives 
to test us, to refine us, immediately begs a qualification, particularly as it relates to this very word. Yes, God indeed is sovereign. He is the source of that external pressure, that external testing. But the qualification that James introduces here is this, that while God is the sovereign source of the external trials, the external testing, he is not the source of the internal pull toward evil. God is not the source of that internal enticement. After James has emphasized the sovereignty of God over circumstances on the outside, circumstances related to trials, James immediately introduces this qualification and says, but understand, God is never the source, never the sovereign source of the enticement that you feel within yourself internally to sin. Go back to James chapter 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, and when we see that word, we can immediately think of the preceding context and even understand that word to refer to external trials. James is making a transition here. Let no one say when, when he is being tested, let no one say when he is facing external pressures that I am being tempted by God. I am being internally enticed to sin. James unequivocally denies that that can happen. God does not do that. So we have an important transition that that occurs here that James insists that his readers recognize. While God tests us, while God sends trials externally, they're never an enticement toward evil. And that instead, as he's going to say in just a moment, that enticement toward evil comes from a very different source. By saying that, that we are not to say that I am being tempted by God, that phrase by God it references the idea that it, it recognizes God as the source of that internal pull. And James negates the possibility that God could entice you internally to evil on the basis of two realities, two truths, on God's own character. First of all, God cannot be tempted. God himself cannot be tempted. Literally, the, the word there could be translated as untemptable. In the middle of verse 13, God cannot be tempted. It is his very character. He is untemptable. There is never any pull that he experiences to anything evil. He never experiences any enticement to do anything except righteousness. It is his very character. And and connected with that, James says, in the last part of this verse, is that God does not tempt. And he, James, is emphatic here when he says he himself does not tempt. Making such a point to, 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 to get across to his readers that there's no possibility that God would ever entice anyone to evil. Not at all. That's the first thesis, and that sets up now the, the second thesis, which, which 
attracts our greatest attention this evening. The second thesis is this. Your own desire is what entices you. Your own desire is what entices you. Verse 14 is very succinct, very concise, very direct. James says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. James now introduces or identifies the true source of the internal pull that all of Adam's descendants experience. That internal pull, that magnetism to evil. James identifies its true source. And he says this, each one. This this phrase, each one, emphasizes very, very clearly on James' part that this is a very personal responsibility. Every individual, each person, each man. And and James emphasizes here the, the personal individual responsibility that every human being has. You you can never blame this internal pull on God. He's dealt with that in verse 13. And you can't blame this internal pull on your parents. You can't blame it on your context. You can't blame it on your environment. You can't blame it on your, your community. You can't blame it on anyone else except yourself. James says each one is tempted when he is carried away. And enticed by his own lust. Let's look for just a moment once again at that idea of temptation. James uses that verb again. Related to that internal pull. And and now I want to focus on that internal pull toward evil. By quoting the words of John Owen. Who described it in more theological terms. than Than a mere lexical definition. And he described temptation this way. This internal enticement, the pull toward evil. John Owen, probably the best theologian ever on the doctrine of sin and temptation, the Puritan, wrote this. Temptation is, quote, anything, any state, any way, or any condition that upon any account whatsoever has a force or efficacy to seduce To draw the mind and the heart of a man from its obedience which God requires of him into any sin. End quote. What John Owen does here is he he states that temptation can come in any form. It can be a thing, it can be a state, a way, a condition that can use any pretext that seduces a man... To depart from what he was created to be and to do by his maker. That is temptation theologically defined. And and if we take this back then we can see that James says this. but, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. James puts his emphasis on this idea of enticement and being carried away. This is how it happens, James says. And James equates temptation with two actions that 
we're well known within the, the secular world of the day, well known in the sphere of fishing and hunting. So this is the kind of terminology that fishermen and huntsmen would use as they would describe their, their hunt. For example, James says that each one, when he's tempted, he is carried away. He is drawn out. And you can picture it this way. It's like the, the lure that is put into the water to draw the fish out of the weeds or out of that underwater crevice and out into the open. And secondly, James says that each one is tempted when he, was, when he is enticed, when he is lured, when he is baited. These verbs have very much a similar idea. And like I said, they were, they were also used in the world of the hunt as, as, as a man would, as a hunter would, would seek after quail or a deer and set a trap and lure the animal, lure the bird into the, the trap by food or water and, and then at that moment capture it with the net. Same idea is, is what James brings in here to describe how, temper, uh, how temptation operates. This is done, he says, by every man's own lust. Every man's own desire. This is what is responsible for the enticement, the baiting. James says it's a man's own lust. Now, this this is an important word that we have to look at, the word for Lust. It's translated as lust many times in, in the New Testament. It's the Greek term epithumia. Epithumia. You can, you can define it or translate it in a fairly neutral way and just say it's, it's desire. It's, it's a craving. It's a desire. It's an appetite. And, and this epithumia, this desire, will arise in response to a real or perceived need. It it arises when there is something deemed as lacking. So, for example, in a neutral sense, if your body lacks hydration, you have the desire for for water. And that certainly is is a good desire. It's been programmed into us by God for our own health. And so you, you have this perceived need. It's a real one, the need for hydration. And that communicates to you to go and find some water and to drink. And in the New Testament, however, the the term epithumia, desire, is only used in that positive sense just a few times. For example, it is used in a positive sense in Philippians chapter 1 verse 23. Where, where the Apostle Paul describes his longing, his desire to be with Christ with these words. He says in Philippians 1.23, But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire, there it is, epithumia, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Paul recognized a real need. He needed Christ. And, and while Christ was supplying that need through various means during Paul's earthly life, Paul understood that that need would be met in its completion, in its fullness, 
in face-to-face presence. And so Paul, feeling this need, wishes, he desires, he craves to depart and to be with Christ. That's a good desire, epithumia. It's also found in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1. Where where Timothy writes this, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work, a good work that he desires. Epithumia, used in the verb sense there. It is a a good desire to, to want to sacrifice yourself for the good of the church. Epithumia, it's a good desire. It's also found in a good sense in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. You can look there, but all that to say... In, in, in relative terms to the number of times that epithemia is, is found in the New Testament, it is just a minority of times when this term is used in a positive sense. In the vast majority of cases, as here in James 1.14, the word desire, the word epithemia, communicates the idea of a desire for something forbidden. It is a desire for something forbidden. It is a a perceived need that the flesh has for something that is forbidden. Or that its achievement, its its way of fulfillment is, is forbidden. And so that is why in most cases in the New Testament, when we come across this word epithumia, it's translated as lust. Because the English term itself communicates that idea of a desire for something forbidden. A desire for something forbidden. Now this is a very important term for us to understand. And, and sadly, it is, it is misunderstood on, on many cases today. Leading to all kinds of confusion and, and, and inappropriate behavior and control over Desires. As we look at this term this evening, it is important to note that this term desire is particularly connected with the body. It's, it's particularly connected to our flesh. And it is responsible for a very significant frequency of our sin. Now, not all of our sin happens as a result of fleshly enticement. There are sins that arise out of the mind itself, not related to the senses. But it is important to understand that this term and and others related to it are are frequently throughout the New Testament associated with uh, with our fleshly lives. And therefore it indicates to us that a large part of the temptation that we feel comes from epithumia, from desire, particularly the desire to gratify the flesh. That's where we struggle. In fact, if we look at how the Apostle John describes it in John chapter 2 verse 16, we see that two of the three categories of sin, two of the three categories deal with desire related to the senses. Notice what he says. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes... And then the third category, the boastful pride of life. But the first two categories specifically list epithumia, lust, desire, as categories of our sinful experience. This is 
where we predominantly struggle, although there are other categories such as the pride of life. So it is important for us to, to dig down deep and understand why, does, why is lust, why is desire so operative in our lives, so dominant? Well, let's look at it this way, particularly as we think of how desire operates with respect to the Christian mind. If we look at our constitution this way, and and the human constitution is, as we've already noted in this series, is incredibly complex. You have mind and soul and spirit and heart. You also have the body. That's another component of what makes us human beings, a material body, the flesh. So how does that operate with respect to the mind? Now, we've defined the mind already as this. It's the faculty of thinking, of comprehending, of reasoning, of judgment, of believing, of discerning. That's the faculty of the mind. It's not the brain. In this diagram, it's difficult to, to reflect reality. So the mind is not equal with the brain. Obviously, there's a connection there. But the mind is more than the brain. So how does the flesh operate? We can define the flesh this way. The flesh is the contaminated spring of desire in our fallen humanity. It is, is in in some respects, it is very tangible. It It is our actual flesh. But in other senses, it's an immaterial aspect. It's the desires that that come from the flesh. The appetites. The hungers that come from our bodies. So what happens in the moment of the kind of temptation that James describes in James chapter 1 verse 14, when one is carried away and enticed by the lusts of his flesh? Well, we can understand it this way, that the flesh takes action. It perceives a need and takes action to compel the mind to alleviate the need. So our bodies will tell our minds, I need satisfaction right now. I need gratification right now. Take steps to fulfill the need. Now again, in the neutral sense, if you've been without water for the day, your body's telling your brain, you're telling your mind, hey, get water. Find some water to drink. And God has made it to function that way so that the mind would then decide where's the nearest source of drinkable water. But when we're talking about the situation in James 1 verse 4, this is not neutral or good desire. This is sinful desire. The body, the the flesh, it entices the mind to take action to meet the need that is perceived. In the case of the sinful desire then, the the body presents to the mind a false reality. You, You need this right now. You need gratification right now. This is good. This is wholesome. You need it. And so the body, the flesh, presents this false reality, this deceit to the mind, and compels the mind to answer compels the mind to consent to the flesh's desire. It's important then to recognize that in the midst of that, this sinful lust 
presents a false reality of need and opportunity and then presses the mind to act. This is, by the way, why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Especially in the realm of a fleshly desire, there is a whole lot of deceit that is involved in that process. As the flesh is telling the mind, we need gratification, we need fulfillment, meet the need. In that process, there is a whole lot of deceit taking place as the flesh misconstrues reality in order to bait and draw out the mind into acquiescence. John Owen, again, said this about it. He said, the first thing, therefore, that sin aims at in its deceitful working is to draw off and divert the mind from the discharge of its duty. End quote. To lure and to entice, to draw out and to bait. That's what the sinful flesh attempts to do. To bait the mind, to to bring it into acquiescence so that it will go and meet the need, the perceived need of the flesh. Now, of course, there are other there are other sources of temptation. I want to make that clear. There are other kinds of temptation. And certainly there are others who will tempt us. In James chapter 4 verse 7, James is going to say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Recognizing that the devil in his own sense is a source of temptation as well. But here, and we must come to terms with the reality that our biggest foe is not Satan. It's the Lustful desire that remains within us. Continuing on, John Owen says this as he continues to describe the way that that this sinful flesh, through its lust, its desire, how it operates. He says this, sinful desire, quote, hides what ought to be seen and considered. It conceals circumstances and consequences. It presents what is not Or things as they are not. This is the nature of deceit. It is a representation of a matter under disguise. Hiding that which is undesirable. Proposing that which indeed is not in it. That the mind may make a false judgment of it. That's what happens. And that's why you know that all the enticements to fleshly sin to the the gratification of the body are all wrapped up with the senses as as those senses are communicating to our minds false realities of beauty of pleasure of goodness of dignity the flesh misconstrues and Deceives and covers and disguises all of that to make what is evil and ugly and hideous make it look good and necessary to the mind. John Owen continues, he says this, deceit properly affects the mind. It is the mind that is deceived. When sin attempts any other way of entrance into the soul, as by the affections, 
the mind retaining its right and sovereignty is able to give a check, a quick check and control unto it. But when the mind is tainted, the prevalency must be great. For the mind or understanding is the leading faculty of the soul. And what that fixes on, the will and the affections rush after, being capable of no consideration but what that presents unto them. He continues, he says, hence it is that through the entanglement of, the, uh, uh, of affections unto sin, excuse me, let me say that again, hence it is that though the entanglement of the affections unto sin be oftentimes most troublesome, yet the deceit of the mind is always the most dangerous. And that because of the place that it, the mind, possesses in the soul as unto all of its operations. The mind's office is to guide, direct, choose, and lead. And if the light that is in us be darkness, then how great is that darkness? All that Owen is communicating there is is emphasizing the the, the state of affairs that happens when, when your flesh is allowed to dictate to the mind its necessary outcome. There's a whole lot of deceit. And when the flesh can, can cause the mind to consent, then there is a whole lot of destruction. You can look at it this way. If we wrap up this so far as to how our understanding is of, of how desire relates to the mind, think of it this way. In three stages. First, there is a feeling of perceived lack. In the, in the workings of temptation, it all begins when there is a perceived need. It's not a real one. It's a sinful one. So it's, it's perceived. It's false. It doesn't correspond with reality as God has determined it to be. That we could call a suggestion. That suggestion then leads the flesh to appeal to the mind to meet that need And it does so by presenting a false picture of reality. We can call that enticement. The the, the flesh then begins to entice, to lure, to draw, to carry away the mind. And it does so by presenting an incorrect state of affairs about what is right and good and necessary. And then finally, the mind is is enticed And it consents. And you can call that consent. This is the anatomy of flesh-inspired temptation. There is initial suggestion. There is a process of incitement. And then there is consent. Suggestion, enticement, and consent. In fact, even if you look at at, at Genesis chapter 3 and the original sin of Adam and Eve, you you can see this at work there In the garden, you have the suggestion. In Genesis 3 verse 5, the certain comes along and says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Essentially, the the, the serpent in that case, because Adam's flesh and Eve's flesh were at that time innocent, so it doesn't yet come from within them, but the suggestion comes here from the serpent. And the serpent says, look, you have a lack 
You don't know good from evil. You, you have a need to become like God. And he suggests it. And then we see that in verse 6, the, 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 the narrative continues. When the woman saw, notice the sense here, sight. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Here you have the process of enticement. The bait is out. The luring is occurring. The, the flesh is drawing out the mind to, to capture it. And then, of course, you have, sadly, in Genesis 3, the consent, Genesis 3, 6b. Eve took from its fruit and ate. And she gave it to her husband with her and he ate. The mind has now acquiesced to the false state of affairs presented by the sinful flesh. We see that also in a text like Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 to 28 where Jesus deals with the the adultery of the Pharisees that was taking place in the heart. And he says this, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery That was the seventh commandment. And the Pharisees were minimalists. And they said that only relates to actual physical touch. But Jesus goes on to say, no, it it relates to so much more than that. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, and now notice this phrase here. Not just that a man looks at a woman, but that he looks at a woman with lust for her. There is the enticement. There is the act of convincing the mind that that look of gratification is necessary. It's necessary for the purpose of fulfilling a need. Jesus says it is that, that look on a woman with lust for her, man has already committed adultery in his heart. That's what's taking place. Now, just a side note here, and I want to bring this up because... Like I said, the issue of desire is quite misunderstood by many today. And it raises the question immediately, well, what about Jesus? Did he struggle with this same desire that is spoken of in James chapter 1, verse 14? Well, we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, these words. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is one who sympathizes with our weakness. And he has been tempted in all ways. But understand this, and this is a very important distinction to make, especially in our day. Christ was tempted by external solicitations, as we are as well. Not by internal enticements. He was not tempted by lust. He was not tempted by epithumia, the corrupted desires of the body. Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus, this high priest, was holy. He was innocent. He was undefiled. He was separate from sinners. He did not share our sinful flesh. And so when James 4 says that each one is tempted when he is carried away 
and enticed by his own lust. That does not apply to Jesus. That does not apply to Jesus. In, in, the, in the process of temptation in Jesus' life, there was not this progression of, of internal suggestion, internal enticement, and mental or, or mindful consent. That is not what was operating in Jesus' life. It was all external. In fact, you could compare it this way. For all of Adam's progeny, all of his descendants, all those who are sons of Adam, we are tempted both by external sources as well as that internal desire. That is the state of our being. But with Jesus, there is no internal source of temptation. All his temptation was external. Nothing came out of corrupted desires. Nothing arose out of a false need. Nothing arose out of, out of the corruption of his flesh because there was no corruption of his flesh. And this is important. Because we hear a lot today of people saying that Jesus struggled with same-sex attraction. He had to have for him to be a great high priest who can sympathize with us. You hear people say Jesus had to have struggled with gender dysphoria. There must have been times when Jesus wondered whether he was a woman or a man. You have evangelicals even saying that today. And that thinking arises from a, a very, very unorthodox, unsound, unbiblical understanding of the way that desire works within us as it compares to how it worked within Jesus. Jesus did have desires, but all of his desires arose out of real need and were not corrupt. He did not share the defilement of men. One writer puts it this way, he was free from inherent sin. We are not. Nowhere in the structures of his being was there any sin. Satan had no foothold in him. There was no lust. There was no affinity with sin. There was no proclivity to sin. There was no possibility of temptation from within. In no respect was he fallen, and in no respect was his nature corrupt. It's a very important distinction. To make. Well, let's come back to James now, though, and, and get to the third thesis that James gives to us here. And it's found in the final verse of this paragraph. Verse 15 says this. And again, he's referring to us. He says, then, when lust has conceived, when epithumia, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James now switches metaphors. He, he, he changes metaphors from the metaphor of the hunt to the metaphor of reproduction. And he, he gives it in, in these two parallel clauses. He first says this, when epithumia, when desire, when lust has conceived, that is, it becomes pregnant. It's the term for being fertilized. When it is fertilized, when, it has, when, when desire has been baited, when the sinful desire has, has caused the consent of the mind in that moment, it gives birth to sin. It brings into the world sin. Sin is that immediate result of when the mind consents to the deception of the desire. At that moment, 
when the mind looks upon what the desire is asserting and demanding, and the mind looks upon that and says, yes. In that moment, in that split second, sin is brought into the world. But there's another half to this. He says that when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Here again, you have the the analogy of reproduction, but with slightly different terminology. And and James now takes it a little little further by by describing what happens that once sin is, is brought into the world, what it gives birth to. There's a consequence here, a sequence of actions that leads to a final result when, when sin is accomplished, when, when sin is, is brought to, to, to reality, to run its course, it brings forth, it gives birth to death. It gives birth to death. And this is the final result. What began with a suggestion that wasn't properly judged by the mind and rejected, and mortified. What began as that suggestion now has led all the way to the final result, which is destruction. And this is very important because the nature of fleshly sin is particularly destructive. Fleshly sin is particularly destructive. It brings out in its most vivid forms the damage, the ugliness of sin and its results. It brings forth death. Now how do we respond to these three theses that James gives to us? A few points of application here as we close. Number one, acknowledge the real reason for your enticement. Acknowledge the real reason for your enticement. In other words, take responsibility. Take responsibility. Number one, you you can't blame God. You can't be like Adam. Remember Adam after they had sinned and, and God gets them and says, what has happened? And Adam says, well, the woman that you gave me. There, Adam was seeking to blame God. And to put the blame on him for being the source of temptation. James says, you cannot do that. God is neither tempted nor does he tempt. That's not going to work. You cannot blame God. You cannot say, I am this way because that's the way God made me. Listen, when you say that as justification for your sin, you are repeating a lie from the pit of hell. When you are justifying your lust and saying, this is just how God made me. This is how I am in God's eyes. That is deceit itself. Take responsibility. The real reason is not God. Secondly, you cannot blame your environment. You cannot say, well, this is just the way I was raised. It's my family's fault. My dad's fault. You cannot say, well, this is just my community. This is just what we do in our culture, in our ethnicity, in whatever. You cannot blame the environment. You cannot say, someone else made me do it. Now, certainly, there are those those 
those cases where others will be used as bait. No question about it. A billboard or an improperly dressed woman. Unquestionably, there is blame there and God will hold them accountable for that. However, men, understand this. You are responsible for what you do in response. And you can never blame it on the, the woman. You cannot blame it on the billboard. You cannot blame it on the bottle that was left there. You cannot blame it on any, any other environmental factor. You must take responsibility. Each man is carried away by his own lust. Your sin is the result of your conscious consent to the deception of your inherent lust. And it is so very important that we realize that. And the longer we, we refuse that or just tinker with this idea, the longer we set ourselves up for destruction. We must take responsibility. Jerry Bridges says this, It is our own evil desires that lead us into temptation. We may think we merely respond to outward temptations that are presented to us, but the truth is, our evil desires are constantly searching out temptations to satisfy their insatiable lusts, James 1.14. Recognizing this reality, the Puritan Thomas Brooks said this, Satan can never undo a man without himself, but a man may easily undo himself without Satan. The same idea was expressed by Martin Luther. He said this, to fight against sin is to fight against the devil, the world, and oneself. The fight against oneself is the worst fight of all. J.C. Ryle said this, What a mass of infirmity and imperfection cleaves to the very best of us at our very best. And Charles Spurgeon put it this way, Beware of no man more than of yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us take responsibility you're the reason number two understand the rightful consequences of such enticement that's what james provides for us here especially in verse 15 he says when lust is conceived it gives birth to sin and then when sin runs its course it leads to death and we need to think of that We need to meditate upon that. It leads to destruction. And this is so very important to understand. Now, for the unbeliever, for the unbeliever who is enslaved to his lust, as as Augustine was prior to his conversion, there there is no hope that the destruction will inevitably come and that destruction will be ultimate. It will be eternal in nature. Death will be eternal in nature. But even for the Christian, even for the Christian who has been freed as Augustine was on that fateful day, even for the Christian who is freed from the power of sin by the power of the gospel, the consequences of sin, particularly of fleshly sin, are still great. And they're still painful. Yes, as God's children, we have the promise that if we confess our sins, he is 
faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a promise that we as God's children cling to and we know that that promise will never fail. But even in the cleansing of all unrighteousness, God does not remove all the consequences of our disobedience. And fleshly sin has a way of wrecking lives. And this forewarning in, in James 1.15 in particular calls upon us to, to reflect upon this ahead of time. That before the, the, the consent is even given to the fleshly lust, that our minds are, are already ruminating on what could happen if. And that is a helpful thing to do. If I would ever go through with that, or if I would ever turn on this or click on that, or if I would ever call this person or ever open this or what have you, if, and then think through the domino of consequences that go from everything from a ruined testimony to estranged relations to broken lives, a loss of job, all these things, think on them already. And that serves as its own defense. Number three, remember the freedom that you have been granted in Christ. Yes, remember your identity. This is important. Remember your identity. If you have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you have said that there is nothing in your hands that you can possibly bring to the Lord that can count as merit, but you only cling to the merit of Jesus Christ and how he lived his life, and how he died his death on your behalf, if you cling to that, you have been freed. You have been freed from the power of the flesh. Read Romans 6. Romans 6 is so clear on that. That all those who have been justified have been freed from the flesh. That the old self, Paul says in Romans 6, has been crucified And we're no longer slaves to sin. That's just reality. That is our identity. And even James chapter 1 verse 18, just a few verses later, James goes on to say this, that by the exercise of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his redeemed creatures. That's our identity and we must cling to that. We must remember that the That the old self, the flesh, was crucified. That's reality. If you're in Christ, your old self was nailed to the cross. And yes, it's still dying. But its fate is secure. There is no way that flesh is getting back off that cross. But sometimes we are like those who go back to it and stroke it and want to nourish it. Stop. Remember your identity. And remember that that flesh is dying. Number four, strengthen the mind's defenses. Strengthen the mind's defenses. Remember that what we focus on here with respect to the mind is that we need our minds to be strong so that they will not consent to the allurements of the sinful flesh that remains in us. As John Owen stated, deceit properly affects the mind. It is the mind that is deceived. And a significant part of that that enticement is the, the construction of a false reality. Remember, we talked about that. 
And so what you want in the mind is that ability to recognize falsehood. And the way to cure that is with truth. So how can the mind not only resist the flesh, but mortify those desires? It's all about truth. It's all about reality as as God has defined it. Reality as God prescribes it. Reality as God defines it. Who we are, how our bodies are to function, which desires are godly and which ones are not. We must fill our mind with those truths so that in the moment of that, that allurement, our minds can properly respond and say, this is deceit. Stop it. And I'm going to kill you. That's how the mind needs to operate. But it will only operate when it's trained. When it can recognize truth from falsehood. Strengthen the mind's defenses so that it can respond to the desires of the flesh. So that you will not be enticed and lured. By those appetites. Father we come before you. Thankful for the instruction of this text. And in your wisdom you have written it in such a way. Where each one of us identifies with every word. We have all experienced. This process play itself out in our lives. Time and time and time again. And at one time, we were like Augustine, prior to reading Romans 13, we were helpless, hopelessly enslaved to this process of suggestion, enticement, and consent. Suggestion, enticement, and consent. We lived our lives in slavery to the false realities of our bodies. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came undefiled. And all the powers of temptation came upon him from Satan, from men. They could not break him. And as a result, he offered up his life for us. And we give you thanks that it is through that that we have received our freedom from bondage to sin. And yet, even as James writes, this lust still remains in our bodies, still petitions our minds for consent. It it still pressures the mind to take action, to find find gratification. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our minds with your word And have your spirit operate within so that we would recognize these ways and respond in a way that would honor and glorify you. Whereby we would not only just avoid these dangerous consequences, these disasters, where we would enjoy the peace and contentment that comes from living as your creatures who have been brought to new life. We ask this, Father, in your Son's precious name, Jesus, and for his glory's sake, amen.